Now, as you are able, would you please remain standing for the reading of the word, which today will be done by one of our high school ministry leaders, Tyler Perez. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you here. We are diving into a new series today uh, called The Five Solas. If you don't know what those are, that's okay. That's why we're going to have the series. Um, the Solas really are what the Reformation was ultimately all about, and it's really ultimately what our faith is all about. And so this idea, sola, sola is Latin for alone. And today we're starting with sola scriptura, which means uh, scripture alone. And we'll be talking over the next few weeks about faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and for God's glory alone. And what we're doing is we're doing what the reformers did some 500 years ago, which is getting to the heart of the gospel message, getting to the basics of our faith and saying, hey, what do we live by? How do we live? Uh, what do we live according to? And, and really today, as we dive in this idea of scripture alone, this is kind of one of the basic foundations of the Reformation. So the Reformation started uh, October 31st officially, so we're in the anniversary month of the Reformation, October 31st of 1517, when Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest, was looking at the church and he saw some things that just weren't right. He was looking at the word of God and he's reading his Bible and he's looking at the way the church lives and acts and practices and he's saying, hey, there's some things that are out of alignment here. And one of the issues is that church leadership, church councils, church tradition were held in equal authority or maybe even higher authority to the word of God. And so they were able to maybe contradict one another at different times. And so Luther is looking and saying, hey, that doesn't line up. And because that doesn't line up, here's some of the practices that I see that you're doing that also don't line up. And so on October 31st of 1517, he posted his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Castle. And that launched the Reformation. 
See, a whole bunch of people looked around and, and, and agreed and said, yes, what you're saying, Luther, is true. We need some radical transformation to get the church back to where we were supposed to be. And there were church leaders that disagreed and wanted to stay where things were at. So this caused a split. And we have what's known as the Protestant church that we are a part of today that came out of this reformation that says, hey, we exist to be obedient to scripture alone because of who God is and what this talks about. And so this was one of the primary principles of the Reformation. And as a matter of fact, in 1521, at the Diet of Worms, Luther was brought to be interrogated and held accountable for his actions. And so the church council and leadership wanted him to repent and revoke his statements and say, hey, everything I said was wrong and I'm gonna submit myself to church authority. But instead, he has this famous quote, and this is what he says. He says, unless I'm overcome with testimonies from scripture or with evident reasons, for I believe neither the Pope nor the council, since they have often erred and contradicted one another, I'm overcome by the scripture text, which I have adduced, and my conscience is bound by God's word. And so what he's saying there is not that the church leadership and church councils and church tradition don't have their place. They have their place. But what he's saying is that if you are going to challenge church leadership versus scripture, I'm going to choose scripture every single time. Because church leaders are people. They have sin. They have errors in their life. And so they're going to make mistakes. But the word of God is perfect. It is without error. And therefore, that is what I'm going to follow. And so Luther proclaimed this idea that we proclaim today that we live according to the scripture of authority. Uh, according to the authority of scripture, not the scripture of authority. Um, we live according to the authority of scripture. This is our basic for how we live life for our faith, for getting to know who God is and what he cares about and how we live in response to him. And so what I hope today is that as we walk through this, we see that this needs to be the authority for us collectively as a church, but also individually that we would place ourselves in submission to the word of God. And that through that, we would see the beauty of God and see the reason for why we want to and need to submit to the word and pay attention to what it has to say. And so the first thing that we need to know is that the Bible is inspired by God. The Bible is inspired by God. As a matter of fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture, meaning the 66 books we have in our Bible here today from Genesis to Revelation, are breathed out by God. They're inspired by him, meaning they are his words. Well, how does that work? What does that mean? Because we know that there are human authors who are writing. Well, Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, he said it this way. He said that basically the inspiration of God is sort of the process that is used. It is similar to a musician playing on a harp or a lyre. That the musical instrument is still present and it plays its role but the musician is there and a talented musician is going to use the instrument to make the sound that he wants it to make. And so while the authors, they still have their wills intact and they still have their, their personalities and their styles, what we ultimately get is the word of God. Hebrews chapter one, verse one, because this isn't just something we're making up here. Hebrews one, verse one says this. It says that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets many times and in various ways. And so we see all throughout the Bible that God is a God who speaks. 
that the Christian faith is a faith that has been revealed to us. Christianity is a revealed religion, meaning God doesn't want to keep himself hidden. He doesn't want to make himself unknown. He wants us to know him. He wants us to explore who he is. He wants us to gain deeper and deeper knowledge of him. And so he reveals himself to us through the word. And that process looks different for the different authors of scripture. See, throughout the Bible, we see different ways that God communicates to his people. In Genesis, we see that God speaks directly sometimes to his people. We see this with Adam and Eve. We see this with uh, Moses and, and Noah and Abraham. We also see throughout scripture that God speaks to his people through dreams and visions, through prophecies, and uh, even through angels. And so you can think of stories like Jacob and, and Joseph and his dreams, or Gideon and his, uh, the angel coming and visiting him, or Mary and the angel visiting her. We also see that God speaks through mighty acts. You look at what God did, what he really told the world through the parting of the Red Sea or through the 10 plagues. You think about the moment where Elijah is facing off against 500 prophets of Baal and they're seeing which God will, will light the altar on fire. And sure enough, the prophets of Baal aren't able to do this and yet God responds to Elijah's prayer and lights the altar on fire, revealing himself to the people. And so God speaks to his people in many different ways, but we see that he clearly is communicating to people. And I was just reading this uh, yesterday, I think, in my, my Bible reading plan, that in the book of Jeremiah, God is talking to Jeremiah and he's giving him this prophecy. And then he says, okay, Jeremiah, now it's time to write it all down so that people will have an account of what I have said to you. You go back to Moses on Mount Sinai and we have the, the, the stone tablets where God has given Moses the law and he says, okay, now here it is in written form so that the people will know. And so God over thousands of years has spoken to his people and encouraged them, told them, commanded them to write down the revelation so that we here today can know who God is and can know how to live according to his plan, according to his will. And so the Bible is inspired by God. And because of that, we know that it has great power, that it has great authority. In Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, it says this. It says, for the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So the word of God is powerful. It's like a double-edged sword. This is uh, our weapon against the attacks of the enemy. See, the word speaks life to us and in all circumstances, we can have hope and we can trust God's plan because he's already revealed it to us. So when we see things around the world like wars and famines and disease and different things that are really painful in our individual circumstances, or things that maybe are far away but seem really scary and frightening, we still have hope because God has already told us that these things are going to happen. But more importantly, he's already revealed the end of the story to us as well. He's told us that for those who put their trust in the Lord, there will come a time where he will wipe away every tear where there will be no more pain, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more hurt. And we will just be with him in glory forever and ever. And so because of the word of God, we have hope, we have joy, we have a peace that surpasses understanding. Because the Bible tells us who God is. 
See, that's the power of the word of God. One of my favorite books is a book called Big God by a former pastor named Britt Merrick. And he was going through a really difficult time in his life. He had a, a daughter, and when she was four years old, she was diagnosed with cancer. She had a, a Wilms tumor the size of a Nerf football. And so he writes in this book, he says, hey, when, when the doctor comes in and tells you that your daughter has a tumor the size of a Nerf football, you better know your Bible. Not for the sake of the Bible itself, but because the Bible tells us about who God is. And in those times, in those difficult circumstances, we need to know God. Because he is the only one who can give hope, who can give comfort in so many of life's circumstances. And so the Bible has great power and Hebrews reminds us that the word of God is alive and active. This isn't just some ancient text of dead words, but it's alive and is active in our lives. It challenges us, it encourages us, it gives us strength, it gives us hope, it gives us life. It constantly points us to Jesus over and over and over again. See, one of the beautiful things about the word of God is that it tells us how we can have a relationship with God. The Bible tells us how a relationship with God is possible. Now, how many of you have been in church for more than 10 years? A lot of hands are raised in the room. And so one of the things we take for granted is we take for granted this idea that we can have a relationship with God. But let's step back for a minute and really think about who God is. We're talking about the God of the universe who really is indescribable. But let's try a little bit to describe him. He, he is in glory and majesty. The, angel, the angels and the heavenly beings, they bow down and they worship him, crying out over and over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the God who spoke the universe into place, who created the universe out of nothing. He doesn't have a beginning he doesn't have an end. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and we deserve nothing from him. And yet he desires to bring us into relationship with him. Don't take that for granted. And so the word of God tells us how this is possible because it's not possible our way, but it is possible his way. And so I love what Psalm 19 says because I think it walks us through this idea of how we can have a relationship with God. And so in these first few verses, it tells us that God reveals himself to us. It says in verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They have no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the, for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. It tells in Psalm 19 that creation demonstrates to us that there is a God that when you stand on the edge of the Pacific Ocean and you think about its bigness and, and just the massiveness of it, when you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon 
don't stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, take a few steps back. But when you look out into the Grand Canyon, when you look up into a clear night sky and you can see all the stars in the galaxy, when you stand in the middle of a redwood forest and you just look around at the beauty around you, our hearts are drawn to the knowledge of a creator. The Bible tells us that, that God's law is planted on our hearts, that our conscience even demonstrates that God is real, that he is present. And so we have this general revelation of God that he has revealed himself to us, but this isn't enough. Because all this does is reveals that there is a God, there is a creator, there is a king, but it doesn't tell us how to submit to him. It doesn't tell us how to be obedient to him. It doesn't tell us how to live in relationship with him. And so for that, we need a special revelation. And that's where God's word comes into play. And so David, who is writing this psalm, says this in verse 7. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. I love the description of the law here, the description of God's word, because it paints this beautiful picture of how amazing and wonderful it really is. And yet if we start with the word law, that can be really challenging because we live in the land of the free. And so often for us, the law is something that is restrictive. It takes our freedoms away because we want to believe that freedom means we get to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. And so law is kind of a bad word. And it doesn't sound nice. It doesn't sound enjoyable. And yet David says that the, the law of the Lord is perfect. It refreshes the soul. He said that it gives joy to the heart. It gives light to the eyes. He says it is pure. It's more precious than gold. It is sweeter than honey. And I wonder if we really believe that. So he goes on and he says that the, the law of the Lord is trustworthy. And that can challenge us because when we look at laws, we're, we're quick to think about who the lawmakers are. And we question their integrity. We question their trustworthiness. We wonder, was this law just made for their own benefit, for, for, for them to be lifted up? Was this made just because they were bought and paid for to make this law? What's the purpose of these laws? So when David is saying that the law of God is trustworthy, what he's really doing is he's saying that God is trustworthy. The lawmaker is trustworthy. And if we know that the lawmaker is trustworthy, then we can trust the law to be trustworthy as well. He said the law is righteous, that it is right. Now let me just tell you something, that if you read through the Bible, there are going to be times, there are going to be days, there are going to be moments, and probably a lot of them, where there's going to be conflict between what you want, what you desire, and what the word of God says. You know, like this idea of forgiving your enemies, can we all agree that that's a hard thing to do? 
And so there are going to be moments where we're like, I don't want to do that, God. I, I, that, just, that doesn't feel right to me. That doesn't do what I want. And so if we're saying that God's law is right, and we know that we'll be in conflict with God's law sometimes, that means that sometimes we might be wrong. I don't know what that feeling is like. But it doesn't seem pleasant. No, of course, we all know what it's like to be wrong. We can all admit that we've made mistakes before, that we've been wrong before. But in this case, it says every time that our will and our desires and, and our understanding conflict with the word of God, the word of God is right. But this is because of who God is. And so when we know that he is a righteous God, then we trust his words given to us are righteous and right and good. He says that the word of God endures forever. So it tells us that this isn't going to change. Right? We're not going to get 20 years down the road and God's like, ooh, that thing is out of date. I'm going to make some revisions. I'm going to make some updates. Actually, you know, a lot of that stuff really, hey, I don't think I want that anymore. Let's just, let's just get rid of some of that stuff. No, the word of God is always going to endure because God endures. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so his words are consistent and consistently true and good and faithful. And here's the thing, what that means for us though is that we constantly have to look at life, at our life, at our culture, at our world, at our nation, at our church through the lens of scripture. Because what many people want to do is they want to interpret scripture through the lens of culture or through the lens of our feelings or through the lens of our church or something other than that. And what we need to do is we need to interpret scripture faithfully and, and then look at the world and interpret the world and what's happening through the lens of scripture. Because culture changes, people change, ideas change. But the word of God remains steady. And so it's going to challenge every person, every culture, and every time always. It always has, it always will. But it's also going to give strength and life in the midst of that. And so if we believe the, the word of God is good, that it is trustworthy, that it is right, then we need to live according to the word. But here's the bad news. David, the psalmist, he reminds us that we can't keep this on our own, that we all fall short. He says this in verse 11, he says, by them, your word, your law, your servant is warned in keeping them, there's great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And so David is speaking to this idea. He's saying, hey, I want to be obedient to the word of God, but I'm looking, and there are times where even when I think I'm doing the right thing, I know there's something deep inside my heart that is outside of your will. He says, who can discern those things? Who is always perfect, even in the deepest places of their heart? So he's saying, forgive me of those, those errors, those sins that, that I don't even know are coming up. And he also says, protect me from my willful errors. Because there's times where I'm going to want to do the right thing or I know what the right thing is, but I want to do something else. And even when I know what the right thing is and if I want to live the right way, there are going to be times where that temptation is just too strong and it's taken hold of me. And by the way, we see this in David's life. But it's not just him, it's all of us that need to acknowledge that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so when we hold our lives up and we compare it to the measurement that is scripture, we are always going to find ourselves lacking. We are always going to find ourselves in need. 
And so that's a sad place to be. And so we can look and say, well, then what's, what's the point? Like, why am I trying to live according to the word? How is the word good if, if all it does is show me how wrong I am? Well, it's because it leads us to this place where we cry out, we need a savior. David is crying out in these verses, Lord, forgive me. I know that I can't keep your law. I know that I can't do this right. I want to, and I know I'm gonna come up short. God, you need to do something. You need to do a work that I can't do. And see, this is the beauty of scripture is that it reminds us that we need a savior and it shows us that God has already sent us one. As a matter of fact, verse 14, David says, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, he really answers his own question. He says, who can discern their own errors? Who can go without any hidden faults? Who can live a life where they're not willfully giving in to sin? There was only one, the person of Jesus, our Lord, our rock, the foundation of our faith. And so we're reminded that it's all about Jesus. And here he is saying, Lord, forgive me, help me. You are my Lord. You are leading my life. You are my rock. You are my foundation. But also he's saying, you are my redeemer. See, the Bible says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it says that sin has a wage, it has a cost that is attached to it. And that cost is too high for any one of us to pay. There's nothing we can do to pay for that on our own. And so we need a redeemer. And the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to live a perfect life so that he could die on a cross, paying the price for our sins, so that our sins would be dead and buried and washed away. And that through his resurrection, we could receive life, life to the full and life eternally. That we receive his righteousness. So God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When we cry out, Lord, who can discern their own sins? Forgive me of my hidden faults. Forgive me of my willful sins. Lord, I need a redeemer. He says, I gave you one, my son, Jesus Christ. So Hebrews chapter one that we read earlier tells us this. It said, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. And so Hebrews is telling us that the Bible is all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. When we look at the Old Testament, it, it shows us our need for him, and it prophesies to his coming. And we see the gospel accounts of his birth and his life and his prophecies and his miracles and, and his teachings and all the things that he did. And we see his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. And everything past the gospels points us back to Jesus. How do we live in response to him? The Bible is all about Jesus. God's law is good and perfect and wonderful, but we cannot live according to it on our own. And so we need a savior. And God gave us a savior, his son, Jesus Christ. And when we put our trust in him, we have life. 
and are able to glorify God and live according to his plan in a way we never were before. And so here are four things that we can do, knowing that the Bible is inspired by God, knowing that it shows us how to have a relationship with God, knowing that it all points to Jesus. Here are four things that we can do. Number one is this, read it. Read the word of God. It seems so simple and yet it's so profound and so rarely done. I said this last week, I say this many times and I'll keep saying it over and over and over again until I get our whole church through it. So if you want me to stop, you better just read through scripture. But it takes 15 to 20 minutes a day to read through the entire Bible in one year. Is there really anything better you can do with your year than reading through the entire Bible? There are very few things that we should be spending more time on than reading God's word. And I'm asking for 15 to 20 minutes a day. If you're like, Ryan, I'm a really slow reader. Okay, it might take you 30 to 40 minutes. That's still not that much time when you think about it. And by the way, you can listen to the word of God on your commute, so you have no excuses. Like if you just want to listen to the Bible app, like you can do that now. Our world is crazy how much access we have to the word of God. And yeah, I heard this stat the other day that only about 10% of Christians have read through the entire Bible. 90% of Christians, people who say we are following Christ, that this is the inspired word of God, have not read the whole thing. We have to do better. We have to be reading God's word. Don't let Sunday mornings when we put the scripture up on the screens be the first and only time you read scripture in the week. Be people of the word. The second thing is this, is that we need to study it. Reading it is great and it's gonna place that, uh, that word in our heart and that's important and valuable. But also the word of God was written thousands of years ago. And so we need to study it and, and understand what it meant then so that we can understand what it means now for us today as well. Now, one of the practical tips I will give you is that studying scripture is something you do on your own, but it's not meant to be done alone. So it is meant to be done in community, meaning there should be times of study on your own, but also we need church. We need to collectively come together, but it also is important to get into small groups. We have classes and groups that happen on our campus, that happen in people's homes. I would encourage all of us to be in a group, to get into the word of God in community to find people that you can talk about with, about the word of God. Because if we're trying to do all on our own, what's gonna happen is we're just gonna put our own ideas, our own understanding and, and make it really easy for us. And so we're gonna interpret this how we want to rather than what is faithful. So we need to be challenged by one another, encouraged by one another, strengthened by one another. And so you can go to our uh, groups page on our website, cccnow.com slash groups and you can find a group to get plugged into and get connected with. A lot of them are, are already going, uh, but find somewhere to get plugged in or grab a couple people and say, hey, let's, let's open up the word of God and study together. So we need to be people who study the word of God and then we need to be people who memorize it. Psalm 119.11 says, for I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Hebrews, remember, compared it to a double-edged sword. And we know that in the armor of God, in the book of Ephesians, that it tells us that the sword of the spirit, the word of God, is the one offensive weapon we have against the enemy. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what did he use to avoid temptation? He used the word of God. You go back to Genesis, Genesis chapter three, and you see the serpent came and he asked Adam and Eve, he, the first question he asked him, he said, did God really say? He was challenging their knowledge of the word of God. 
And because they didn't perfectly know the word of God, they gave into temptation. They gave into sin. So memorize it. Start putting it into the deep places of your heart so that when these temptations come or these moments happen in life, we are prepared for them. And finally, live by it. Live it out. Live according to the word. Submit to the authority of the word of God because of the beauty of the word, because of the beauty of the law, because we know that it points to Jesus and it tells us how to have a relationship with God. We live according to its word, according to God's word. And so the challenge for Christians is balancing this idea of grace and freedom from the, the, the weight of law, but living according to the law. And so the reality is that, that we don't live according to the law because it earns salvation, but we live according to the, the law because of because we have been saved to be able to do this. So it's not to earn salvation, but it's because of salvation that we live according to God's word. We have been given the freedom to submit to the perfect law that is more precious than gold, that is sweeter than honey. And so we need to live the way that God desires for us to live because it's these words that lead to life and life to the full. And it's when we live according to his word that we live as witnesses of Jesus Christ for the world around us so that they too can come to a saving faith in Christ. So let's be a people who read the word of God, who study it, who memorize it, and who live it for our own benefit and the benefit of those around us as well. Let's submit ourselves to the authority of scripture in all its beauty and glory. And let's be reminded of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for this day that we can gather together and worship you. That we can open up your word and explore who you are and how you want us to live. And so God, I pray that we would be a people who submit ourselves to your authority, who value the word, who love the word, who treasure the word, and who live according to the ways that you've called us to live. God, when we stray, remind us over and over and over again that these are the words that lead to life. And so help us to believe what the psalmist, what David cried out, that your word is perfect, that it is righteous, that it is trustworthy, that it is more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. And so let us be a people who pursue it, who learn it, who memorize it, and who live according to it. We love you, Father, and praise things in your son's name. Amen.